0: If you have your Bibles, please open them to the book of Colossians. We will be in Colossians 2 this morning. Let us begin by reading our passage. In Colossians 2, we'll focus on verse 9 through 15, but we will go back up and read from verse 8 and down. Paul writes to the Colossian believers, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. These he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. May God add his richest blessing to this reading of his word. Back in the 1800s, there was a man named William Morris. Like every poet that's ever mentioned, he was an Englishman. William Morris wrote these words, although it was written in the 19th century, they probably stand for a great many people today. This poem is called Love is Enough, and it's appropriately titled. Love is enough, though the world be a waning. And the woods have no voice but the voice of complaining, though the skies be too dark for dim eyes to discover the gold cups and daisies fair blooming thereunder, though the hills be held sw- shadows and the sea a dark wonder, and this day draw a veil over all deeds passed over, yet their hands shall not tremble, their feet shall not falter, the void shall not weary, the fear shall not alter, these lips and these eyes of the loved and the lover." William Morris was a man who was raised in 19th century England and as such he was raised in a Christian household and he knew much about Christ. He eventually succumbed to atheism as was the want in the day. You can tell though, even in his atheism he has to have something to cling on to and so he clings familiar to that which is love. This was probably modeled best for most of us by another Englishman, this time in the 20th century, who penned the words, All You Need Is Love, in one of the most insipid and ridiculous songs that was ever penned by a man who I generally like, but um, when he writes songs, we're almost no good, and that is John Lennon, All You Need Is Love, All You Need Is Love, and it goes on for an infinite amount of time. The problem with Mr. Morris and the problem with Mr. Lennon is that while this is true, and certainly as Christians, we have to uphold love as being good, foundational for us as true. There is no escape from that. We could excise 1 Corinthians 12, or excuse me, 1 Corinthians 13, from our Bibles, this chapter of love. We could take that out of there. And love would be no less foundational to the Christian message. Love is the basis of everything that we see and read in Scripture. And so we think of that as just being terribly important. And at the same time, I question the insight that Mr. Morris and Mr. Lennon bring. Mr. Morris says, If everything goes to pot around you and there's nothing but complaining around you and you can't find any good in the world, all you need to know is that you will not weary as long as you are both one of the loved and the lover. We, we know this. When you are with someone or with people that you, you love and you cherish your life with, you can withstand much in the world. The question for Mr. Morris and for Mr. Lennon is what happens when that love fails? Which you and I know happens. It's easy. It's easy to say that all you need is love when it surrounds you. It's much more difficult to say that when it fails you. No less than Paul Simon reminded us that there is 50 ways to leave your lover. And certainly there's probably more than that. Love leaves you because they decide they don't love you as much. Love leaves you because they decide to try something else. Love leaves you because death takes them. Love leaves. You need more than love. At least something more foundational than human love. What does it mean to have a life then that is fulfilled? It is not life or it is not love that will fulfill your life. It is not love that you can you can live a life based upon. You need more than that. Where shall we go? What shall we find for it? We talked several weeks ago about numerous ways that you can base your life on things like science or on things like success and fame and fortune, and all of these things will eventually pass away. They will serve you in no small manner toward your own destruction. It is fortunate then that we have a man like Solomon in the Old Testament. It is an amazing thing. Solomon is given wisdom unlike any other man the world has ever seen. He has given wisdom and achievements and brilliance and, and just overwhelming abundance. And yet God allows him to be crushed as he goes through the rest of his life and he eventually falls away from God. And one of the ways that we can read and wonder Why does it God allow somebody who has all the wisdom that God himself provided for him to fall away, I think is found in the book of Ecclesiastes, written by Solomon, where we hear these words, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I have applied my heart to seek and search out, by wisdom, all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given the children of man to be busy with, I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, it is all vanity and a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly, and I perceived this also was but a striving after the wind, for in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. He goes on to talk about his accomplishments, his, his wisdom, not just in applying good thoughts to living a good life, but even in intelligence, in science, in, in studying nature, in accomplishments, in building things, in women, 700 concubines. He, he talks about all this and he comes back and he says, it's all just vanity. There's nothing there. An Old Testament professor of mine said that it's, it's like soap bubbles. Vanity of vanities. It's all vanities. It's all just soap bubbles. They look pretty. They fly around for a little bit. But as soon as it touches even the hand of an infant, it's crushed. Where do we go to find happiness and joy? Where can we have something that's more secure? Psalm 34 would lead us to God. First ten verses of that psalm read, I will bless the Lord at all times. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. You are to seek the Lord. A fulfilled life then, according to the scripture, is finding God. God. You find God. You have all of the treasury of everything that God is behind you. You have all of the beauty, all of the majesty, all of the glory, all of the possessions that you could ever want. The question is then for the psalmist and for us today, how do we find God? The Jews certainly would have said they knew exactly where God was and they would have gone to the temple. They would have said in the temple we've got four rooms and inside those four walls we've got a room which is the Holy of Holies and in that Holy of Holies there is an ark and in that ark and on that ark lands the glory of God and that is where he is to be found and everywhere we go we know that that is where God is. And you can go to Jerusalem and you can see the spot, the very spot where that temple stood and we should emphasize where that temple stood because it stands there no longer. There is no Ark. There is no Holy of Holies. We come then to the book of John. John, as we've read already, and we've already made reference to this in the book of Colossians, talks about the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. That, Like that tabernacle that followed the people around, God has now, instead of dwelling within a temple, inside a a man-made structure, inside a a four-walled building, he has now registered and made himself known in the body of a man, that is Jesus Christ. And he has put on flesh, a nature that he did not have before. He puts that on and becomes real man. All God, all man. And he dwells with us. And that is where Christ is to be found. If God is to be found, it is to be in Jesus Christ. Famously, we can read in the passage in John 4, verses 19 to 24, the Sumerian woman who has come out to meet him, and they talk about a number of things. And eventually, the woman turns to him and says, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus announces the completion and the end and the destruction of the temple in that. And John also famously talks about Jesus referring to himself as the temple. If you are to find God, you are to find him in Jesus Christ. Paul says essentially the same thing. Listen to these words in verse 9. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells. It is in Christ that all of deity dwells. But... Let us clarify just a little bit more. And remember, I said that these, this passage was based off of Colossians 1:18, or it was based off of Colossians 1:15 through 20, which we read several weeks ago. Specifically, though, of importance here is verses 18 through 19. So read those with me if you want to flip back just one page earlier in Colossians, and you can see that Paul. If we consider this to be an early Christian confession, Paul is unpacking these verses for us here, and I want to make a very clear connection about where Jesus is to be found. Verse 18 And he, that is Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So when you come over to chapter 2 and you read, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, you read that and you say, oh, that sounds a lot like that former hymn that we read, or that former creed, whatever it happened to be in the early church. That sounds a lot like him. And then you hear this word bodily. And scholar after scholar after scholar says, okay, there are some people who think that's a reference to the church, but it just can't be a reference to the church. That is clearly a reference to the incarnation of Jesus Christ. I'm telling you, man, I cannot read that and not link back to 1, chapter 1. When it says the whole fullness of him dwells in, or excuse me, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, that bodily, if we are to see that as a reference back to verses 18 and 19, that almost has to be a reference to the church. Where does the fullness of God dwell? It dwells in Christ. Whose body is the church. One, I didn't give you your blanks. We should calm down and do that. (laughs) A fulfilled life is formed in the body of Christ. It is formed in the body of Christ. Christ. In the same vein, you can read in Ephesians, the end of the first chapter, verses 22 and 23, "...and he put all things under his feet and gave him as a head over all things to the church." which is his body, and listen to the way Paul talks about it. Which is his body? The church is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. Just as when Christ came in the flesh in the first instance and says, this is the temple of God. He talks to the people around the temple and he says, you can take down the temple, you can tear it down and in three days I'll build it back up. They say, well, that doesn't make any sense. It took us like 44 years, man, to make that. And that was a whole bunch of us working together, and it's still not completed. And John then says, oh, you guys didn't get it. He was talking about his body. The temple of God was the body of Christ, and now the body of Christ has become his church. Listen, if you want to know Christ, there's a very easy way that you can think that everything can be privatized for you. All you've got to do is pray a prayer. You've got to say a couple of nice things. You've got to keep him in your heart somehow, somehow, keep him in your heart. And you can experience all of the pleasures and all of the fullness that Deity has to offer. And Paul continually comes back and says, no, no, no. It's found in the church. In the church. It's always in the church. How do you get to Christ out in the wilderness? People always talk about that. Well, I can, you know, I can find God out in the wilderness. But you, know, you can't. I mean, you can kind of, but it's not there fully. You realize everyone who loves nature goes out into nature for like a week and then returns home. You know why? Because nature's there to kill you people. <laughs> it's filled with spiders and bears. It gets cold. It gets hot. You can't grow things for a week. You've got to till the land. You've got to do everything else. You eventually return to a home that has heat and cool and running water and food in a refrigerator that's all neatly done for you because nature will kill you. You can talk all you want to about finding God there, but what do you do? You leave there. You don't stay there. We talk about people being stranded in the wilderness. That's not where we want to leave people. You don't find God out in nature. Where do you go to find Christ? You don't just find him in Scripture. You do find him in Scripture. But fully and most fervently, you find him in the body of Christian belief. You find him here in the church. 1 Corinthians 12 talks like this. If you'd flip back there with me. Paul is chastising the Corinthians in this letter for divisions that have popped up. Those divisions have popped up because they they appreciate one spiritual gift over another. They, They really like the flamboyant gifts, those gifts that seem most miraculous. They love those the most. So they love talking in tongues and they love doing miraculous works and things like this. And Paul is chastising them because while they like those most flamboyant works, they also assume that the people who do the flamboyant works are somehow greater or better or more important than people who cannot. And so Paul brings them back down to earth and he does this by a metaphor to the body and this is what he says in verse 12 1 Corinthians 12 verse 12 for just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of one body though and all the members of the body though many are one body so it is with Christ for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body Jews or Greeks slave or free and all were made to drink of one spirit What's what's he saying there? He's saying, to the Corinthians, you esteem one person higher than another. And, And you think that you can sort of exist on your own as though this is a hierarchy. He says, no, guys, this is a body. And you need all the parts of the body to function well. And notice again, he calls the body Christ. He doesn't reference it as the body of Christ. He says, literally, this is Christ. So it is with Christ. That Christ is a reference to the church. You can't function individually. You are not more important. Because you might be functioning as a kidney doesn't mean you don't need the liver. For us, it's different. It's not as though he goes on to say this. Let's read a little bit further because what he's going to say is fairly helpful here. For the body does not consist of one member but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. He says, you were baptized into one spirit. You were baptized into unity. And you are dividing that unity out. You are making it one thing and more important than another person. And Paul says that can't possibly be. It is a member of the body. Just because the foot says I'm not a hand doesn't mean it's any less part of the body. What we're doing is similar but totally different as feet. We think that we can cut ourselves off and still be the body of Christ. We think that we can be a severed foot walking around in the woods. Finding Christ. And Paul says, no, no, no. The fullness of the body of Christ is found in everybody collectively together because they all have something that you lack. You cannot, on your own, ever experience the fullness of Christ. You need brothers and sisters to do that. James 5, 14 through 16 says this, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Notice the therefore here. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. At no point in time does he say, go off in the woods, close your eyes, meditate a little bit, and confess your sins. Notice where he points you to. He doesn't say, make sure that you are continually confessing your sins to God in secret. He says, you will confess your sins to one another so that you might be healed. You don't lay in your bed alone privately praying that God will heal you. You do what? You call the elders of the church and they will come and pray over you. You need the body to experience everything that Christ has for you. You cannot do that outside the body of the church. Same thing Galatians 6, 1 through 3. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself. Listen to this. Lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Listen to verse 3. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. You are to bear one another's burdens. You think that you can make it on your own? You are deceiving yourself. And you better watch out because you will fall. And there will be no one there to catch you. To have the back and the support of those in the church is to be involved in the fullness of Christ. A fulfilled life is found in God, but it is formed in the body of Christ. Second, a fulfilled life is founded on the work of Christ. Lest the emphasis on the church be overwrought, and we can begin to think, as Roman Catholics do, that somehow church authority stands in line with scriptural authority or that church authority stands in line with uh, the authority of Christ. We have these words from Paul. Notice, after he talks about the fullness of him dwells bodily and you have been filled in him who is, and here's the reference back to head, all of, the, who is the head of all rule and authority. The church acts as Christ only when it is actually a body that is connected to the head. Again, we could continue that metaphor and say, not only are you a foot that's trying to sever yourself and make it in the world, you've also decapitated Christ from his body, thinking that you can have the head without any arms, legs, feet, or toes. But the church does not stand on its own. The church is not an entity on its own. The church is always under the authority of Christ. And we can act only as the body of Christ when Christ is truly our head. Furthermore, You'll notice how, in all of this, it is the work of Christ that is front and center. Although the church has a responsibility here, it is Christ that is front and center. You have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. In Him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, the putting off of the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, being raised with Him. It is always by the work of Christ that we have the authority to do anything. A fulfilled life might have to be found in the body of believers, but that body of believers is founded on the work of Christ. Christ is still front and center. You still have to come to him. You can't just come to the church. That church has to be connected. And you, yourself, have to be connected to the very head and the font of all that is good and holy. Listen, even in here when we talk about baptism, this is one of those things we didn't talk about. When we talked about circumcision and baptism last week, we didn't talk about this. But even in baptism, Baptist, we talk about the symbolism of baptism. We say that in Christ we are then buried and, and in the water we are put where we, we cannot live and then we are raised to walk in the newness of life. And that not only symbolizes being buried with him and being risen to new life, it also symbolizes the fact that we are washed of our sins and it's symbolic, it's symbolic. It's symbolic. It's not, it's not just symbolic, guys. It's not just symbolic. Because we only view it from the, the viewpoint of the person being baptized. But you know what we don't do when we baptize people? When Sally comes to me and she says, listen, Pastor, I've been convicted of my sin and I've repented. And I think that I need to be baptized. I don't say, okay, Sally, you tell me what you know of Christ. And you tell me and you confess who Christ is to me and, and When she does that, I say, okay, okay, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to go to the bathtub, I'm going to fill it up, I'm going to dunk you, and we're going to be good. We don't do that. We gather the church, and we publicly baptize somebody. That is important. Don't miss that. Baptism requires somebody to baptize. Baptism is never, ever done in private. There's a reason for that. It's never even, It doesn't matter which theological circle you might roll in, it's never done in private. It's always done in public because the church itself is giving their own affirmation that the confession that that person has made is good. Why do you think Paul continually talks about baptism when he talks about the unity of the church? Almost every time baptism comes up, it's not only a unity to Christ, but it's a reference to the unity that we have with one another, as we just read in 1 Corinthians 12. You guys have factions and divisions. Don't you know you were baptized? You were baptized because the church is giving their affirmation on the goodness of your own confession. But it is, it is founded on the work of Christ. It is always founded on the work of Christ. You can come to know the fullness of God only through Christ. And you can only experience that union through the church. The church acting under the headship of Christ. And only as it acts under the headship of Christ that can bring you into the body. And the only place that you can find Christ in his fullness is in a body that is under Christ's headship. If you want a full life, if you want to know what God is, you can't find God outside of Christ. And you cannot find Christ outside the church. Lastly, a fulfilled life is freedom from your enemies in Christ. Brings up a really good question. What has this Christ done for us? What does it mean to get at the fullness of God? It means that Christ has done away with the two things. The two things that most... Stand in your way of knowing God. First is this in verse 14. By canceling a record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he nailed to the cross. There is a record of debt that you owe to God. I do not think that this is referencing the law. I don't think Paul is squeamish about mentioning the law as it stood in Israel. I think he would have just said it. What I think this is, is you as a created being O oh God Majesty and glory and power. You ascribe to him thankfulness. You do all of these things in reference to God, but we do not do this. This is the heart of idolatry. This is the heart of of the Bible leveling us all as sinful before him. Instead of honoring and magnifying and glorifying God, what we do is we take of the good things that God has given to us and we revel in those things. So we go out to eat. And we think how great that burrito is, but we don't give thanks to God for making the things that made the burrito. You think that's a light thing. That's not a light thing. That's idolatry. We're grateful for all the things that God gives to us, but we're not grateful to God. That is the heart of idolatry. We take what God has given us with the breath he has given us, with the brain he has given us, and instead of giving him glory, we give glory to the thing that he has made. That is literally what happened to Adam. That is the inversion. That is taking the creature and making it into the creator. And what do we do with God on the flip side of that? We treat God like he is simply something to get things out of. We treat him as tit for tat. If I'm good, then God should really be good to me. We manipulate him. We work him over. We pray when we need it. We ignore him when we don't. We think that he is just something to stick a quarter into to get a toy out of. That is treating the creator like the created thing. That is manipulating what is below us. All the while we praise and glorify his creation. That is sin. We owe God for that. that owing is both something that we will we need to pay God with our lives for because it is traitorous to him but it is also in the very act itself death god is life god is goodness he is the one who has given us all good things and if we seek to distance ourselves from him eventually there will be a day when he distances himself from us and in doing so there is death paul says god has taken All of that record of what we owed to him and he has put it on the cross. With Christ, it is now crucified and gone. You owed a debt to God that you could never pay and Christ has paid that for you and that is a two-way street. Both he has taken what you owed and you can never go back and redo and he has paid it to God. He has done what no one else could in going to the cross and being obedient and joyful in that obedience, even unto death. Remember, Again, Adam and Eve are so fundamentally important. What happens to Eve? The snake says, really, it's a bummer. You can't eat from all the trees. She says, it's really just the one tree, but okay. It does look good. I should really be able to eat it. Christ comes to the world, and although everything is taken from him, His people do not recognize him. His disciples leave him. Everything is taken away from him. He's not told, you get the run of the mill, except for this one little thing. He's told, everybody's against you. Be obedient to me. And he's obedient to the point of death and even death on a cross. All of our deeds, all of the things that we have done wrong, Christ has done right. So Christ has done everything that we owed to God. And on the flip side, God has treated Christ as we deserve to be treated. And he has crucified him instead of us. Secondly, he has not just taken away our sin from us, which is not only noted here, but noted further up when it talks about circumcision. And in verse <clears throat> 13, being dead in our trespasses, and he has forgiven us all of our trespasses. But in verse 15, he has also disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. It sounds a lot like the book of Ephesians, chapter 6, where we read this in, verse, in, in chapter 6, verses 10 and down. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and powers and authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul is saying he has put them to open shame, which is really funny and ironic because of how he died. I mean, the whole purpose of a cross was not just to kill somebody. The Romans had better ways to do that. That's expensive, by the way. You've got you to gotta go get wood, and you've got to have soldiers around to do it. It's much easier just to run somebody through with a sword. It wasn't just to kill people that they did that. They killed people that way because it was humiliating and shameful. They would line roads with crosses with people being crucified on them simply to demonstrate this is what happens. Not only when you, when you fight against Rome, but these are the people you're sending. Look at them. They're naked. They can't come down from the cross. They die because they are unable to keep breathing. They die because the sun wears them away. They die from simple exhaustion. They're saying, we don't even need to kill them. They're so weak, they'll die on their own. It was a complete degradation of dignity. And Christ goes through that. But Paul says that he disarms them. That is literally... Literally, just as we read earlier, when it talked about putting off the flesh, it is an unclothing. He, I don't know why they translate it this way. He unclothes them. No longer is he naked on the cross, but being naked on the cross somehow derobes them. They stand naked and ashamed before God because of it. So we read in something like Matthew, Matthew 27. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, Lemai, Sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it seems like what that should be read as is Christ going to the cross and him being crucified and all of the burden wearing him down so that in his final moments he has actually realized that God has turned away from him. That all of the lies of Satan have finally come home for him. That he has finally committed himself to the fact that God is not with him. He knows that it's all been a waste. And he's saying, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's easily read that way. But that is simply the first line of a psalm. That first line of Psalm 22. Which reads, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God. I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. But that psalm doesn't end there. It's not a psalm of God disposing of his people and leaving them to rot. It is actually a psalm of even in the midst of the worst trial of hope in God. So it ends with this, or in the middle of it, it says this. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. It goes on to say, The one who is afflicted, you will not leave afflicted. Far from being a cry of dereliction. It's a cry of hope. Jesus takes on himself... Everything that the world has to offer, every bow and arrow, every sword, everything that the world can do to harm him and to kill him. He comes to the world, his own doesn't know him. He comes to the people, he speaks truth to them, and he is crucified for it. Rome, the strongest military might in the, in the world, comes and tries to do everything they can to crush him, and he gets out of the grave in three days. Satan uses his only and his most powerful weapon, death. and Paul says for three days it held him. And then God resurrected him. A fulfilled life is freedom from your enemies, and Christ has done that. Christ has freed you from the enemy of the debt that you had that keeps your soul from God. That is no longer there. Satan and the principalities and powers have no more power over you, they do not reign over your life. You are free from them as well. No philosophy can free you from your debt to God. Science cannot beat death. No amount of love in the world can defeat sin or Satan. No amount of fame or success can thwart the power of the devil. Nothing promising pleasure can sustain you through the trials that you will face. But our God is a mighty God. He is a bulwark, never failing. Run to him you want to know what a fulfilled life is like it is found only in Christ only in him and it is found only here not just at Crossway. There's millions of places around the world where it is found, but it is found in his church where the gospel is proclaimed while people are being changed that stand the slings and arrows of the devil that stand side by side receiving one another as sinners, knowing that they're sinners, knowing that we will have to forgive one another, knowing that we will have to put up with the failures and features of one another that we don't like, but we will do it gladly because Christ has done it for us. That is what a fullness of life speaks to. You will never, ever escape suffering in this world. Whether you're famous, whether you're rich, whether you are in good health now, you will always succumb to suffering. Someone will be taken from you. Someone will leave you. Your own life will empty away. Your brain will turn on you in your old age. Whatever it is, you will always be dereft of something. But Christ will never leave you. If you have been baptized into him, it is for certain. You are in him. You have died with him. You will not die again. That reality is found only in Christ. And that only through the preaching of his word in his church. Let us thank God for that this morning. Father God, you are good to us and kind in so many ways. And you have given to the world not only your son, Jesus Christ, but his bride, his body, the church. You have given us such great responsibility to uphold The word of Jesus Christ, to proclaim the gospel to the nations. You have given it to us to baptize people, to demonstrate the, the truthfulness of their own confession before you. So Father, we know that grave responsibility that has been placed upon us, but we also know that because that responsibility has been placed upon us, you have guaranteed that you will never leave us or forsake us. You will always be with us. And so we are able to gather together as a church to know the fullness of who you are as we walk with one another down a path of life that is filled with trials and temptations and difficulties and sufferings. But Father, we will, we will suffer with them together. We will put up with them together because we see the glory of Christ here. There is nowhere else where your joy can be found. We give you thanks for that for one another, those your saints whom you have called by your holy word. We ask for your blessings upon us as we sing your praise in Jesus' name. Amen.